0: Austin Oaks Church, so glad to see you. Happy 4th. One of my favorite weekends, because it's okay to play with fire. Man, it's like literally, I just become a kid. I'm more kid than my kids on the Fourth of July. And I gotta say this, I gotta say this. You Texans know how to do 4th of July. Like, like it's amazing. I don't have to leave my house. I can watch fireworks from my living room without mosquitoes, it's amazing. So nonetheless, love the 4th of July. This morning, we are wrapping up our sermon series on the Holy Spirit. But I want to throw out a little bit of a caveat this morning uh, because I was hoping, and maybe we'll get there, but I very much doubt it, that I wanted to get to the place where we start talking about the spiritual gifts and how does that look like and how does the church function and operate in that. So, what we're going to do in the next coming weeks is we're going to roll out some podcasts and talk about that. I'm going to have some conversations with some people and we're going to engage in that. So, if I don't get to that, this morning, we're going to do that as a supplement to the side because we're going to be moving into a very important sermon series starting next Sunday called The Way of Love. And because we need to, as a church, learn how to love like Jesus loves, specifically in the culture and the climate that is all around us. It's only going to get more tense as we continue on all the more as the Lord comes back. So I want to do a quick recap so that way if you haven't been with us or if you missed one or two Sundays, I can catch you up to speed real quick. But we've been talking about specific things. In other words, like how to be filled by the Spirit. We looked at Ephesians chapter 5, and we started to interact with the dynamics between, yes, when you become a believer, you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's dwelling inside of you. It's a deposit. It's a a guaranteed thing that you have. But that does not mean that you are necessarily filled with the Spirit, because the way Paul writes that in Ephesians 5 is to be daily filled with the Spirit, to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit Daily, and it's a passive thing, so it's not something you can do. So, we are talking about the illustration of a sailboat like a sailboat cannot control the wind, but the sailboat is absolutely 100% dependent upon the wind for it to be a sailboat. So, that our job is to harness the wind by setting the sails in such a way where the wind blows, it gets in the sails, and the sailboat is now under the influence of the wind. That's the idea of being filled with the spirit. And we talked about being led by the spirit, and what is that? That all about and started to talk about where is he actually going to be leading us to? We looked at some general things and we came out with the principle of understanding that the Holy Spirit always leads to life. He always leads to life, no matter what he does. He can only do good. So if you are convicted of sin, like you got to understand, that's like his goodness. That's his grace. You can trust that because at the same time as he's convicting of sin and righteousness, he's the one who leads us and to remind us, and actually he's the one who sheds abroad the love of Christ in our hearts. So that way we know how much Christ loves us, how much God loves us, and we're rooted in that. And at the same time, he's going to lead us to walk in the freedom that the gospel won for us. So that we no longer go back into living as a slave to sin. But rather a slave to Jesus. It's powerful stuff. And then the last thing we kind of looked at was like walking by the spirit or keeping in step with the spirit. I, like as I thought about that, um, I remember reading one commentary saying it was like, you know, it's kind of like that phrase. Like sometimes like parents your kids like when you're going somewhere like, come on, keep up, keep up. And it immediately triggered a memory for me of when I took our kids to Breckenridge and I took them to do a little hike in the mountains, which is totally outside of their comfort zone. But I remember this is exactly what happened as we're like walking down. It was just like... My My son's like, come on, how much more? And my littlest is like, I'm done. (laughs) She's like, boom, I'm not moving. And then the oldest is like, whatever. She just keeps going, right? It's like, keep up with the Holy Spirit. Keep up, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into a mystery as we start to talk about how to move and interact in this dynamic, this fellowship with the Holy Spirit, this relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, I I know you felt this because I feel it every single time because the Holy Spirit is a hard thing for us to understand. It really is, in a lot of ways, a mystery. And if you were honest, along with me, we really do not like ambiguity, We don't like gray. We we want to know exactly what this means. We We don't like unclear answers. Like when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're like, hey, just please give it to me straight. Put it in a tweetable size. Give me the three points. What should I know? What should I do? Just three things, right? Like we're so busy. We don't have time to sit on this. So just kind of summarize it for me. Like we don't like mystery. We love logic. We want it to appeal to human reasoning. We want it to be verifiable. We want to be able to go, look, here's this and this and this. It's proven by this, so therefore we're good. But mystery sometimes is a significant challenge for us. And as we approach this text this morning, I want us to understand, I know, I know, we aren't always too comfortable with mystery. Okay? We're not always too comfortable with mystery. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not true. You ever have a hard time trying to understand the Trinity? If any of you say no, you're a liar. Like, the the Trinity is is mysterious, right? Like, it's so hard to understand. Like, there's, there's nothing more dreadful as a parent, even though it's exciting that they do this, but they're like, Dad, can you explain to me the Trinity? Go ask your mom right like, it's just like oh my goodness I don't know how to explain this it well it's like you know there's the father and then there's son there's Jesus and and then there's the Holy Spirit like they're three persons and they're equal and yet they're one and then okay okay dad so who do I pray to <laughs> like how do we interact like if Jesus is in me like how do I see him and how come I can't like hear him always and and dad like do pets go to heaven I can answer that one. Dogs do. (laughs) But like when we, we start to think about the Trinity, we try to find an illustration or some sort of like reference to help us make sense of it. So like sometimes we go, well, the Trinity is like an egg, right? You got the shell, you got the white stuff and the yolk three different parts. When all added together, it's one. It's an egg. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, the Trinity is like water, H2O, right? Because you got like Jesus, you know, he's like an ice cube, and the Father's like the liquid, and the Holy Spirit's like the vapor. You know, it's just like it's three things, but it's all one. Like, it kind of helps. It kind of helps, but it, it falls way short of defining the Trinity, Like, God doesn't change from one form to another form. He he doesn't change on circumstances or time. God is always and fully the Father. God is always and fully the Son. God is always and fully the Holy Spirit all the time, in all circumstances. They're not different parts of God. They are all co-equal and co-eternal. It's a mystery. Now, does that mean it's not true? Just because we can't understand it? Just because we can't make sense of it? Just because we can't relate it fully to someone else, does that mean like we just kind of disregard it or don't give it much attention? Man, like scriptures remind us over and over and over that God is beyond our understanding, right? Look at this, Job 11, verse seven through eight. Can you find out the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Sheol or hell. What can you know? Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I want to encourage you to write this verse down. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Where where, uh, Moses is saying, like, the hidden things of God belong to God. Like right away, right there, Moses is saying, there are things that are hidden. There are things that you cannot know. But the things revealed are for us. In other words, like God reveals certain things, not all things. The hidden things belong to God, but the things that are revealed are for us so that we may walk in them. Friends, most Sundays, in fact, every Sunday, specifically the past four, I have felt so overwhelmed in trying to talk about the Holy Spirit because it's a mystery. And, and it's like, you come up here, you're like, I am the one teaching and guiding through Scripture and inspiration to the Holy Spirit, hopefully, and I'm trying to explain a mystery of something that I don't fully know myself. Like, I don't fully walk by the Spirit always. I'm not always filled by the Spirit. I'm not always keeping in step with the Spirit. Like, I don't get it. I don't have the answers of how to, like, sum up the Trinity and how it all works. I can't give the explanations of what praying in the Spirit exactly means and how to do it. So I'm saying to you the same thing that Paul said to the the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4.1. A person should think of us this way, as servants of Christ and managers or stewards of the mysteries of God. Like, like, really, what we're trying to do with the gospel is we're stewarding a mystery. The truth and the reality of the gospel. Like, the facts of God. Like, just think about this, okay? Like, the gospel in itself is a marvelous mystery. And we got to understand that there's limits to our knowledge. There are things that we can't know. In fact, that's a good thing. Because if we knew everything, guess what? God is no longer God. Because God is infinite. He's unfathomable. You can't grasp all of that. And you don't want to. You don't want to resolve the tensions of all of the mysteries of God. Because if that was all there, would you actually pray? Would you actually lean in? Would you actually want to know more? Would you actually be hungering and thirsting for the things of God? Humility is Absolutely essential and needed when it comes to knowing the things of God. And James chapter 1, verse 21, encourages us to humbly receive the word that's implanted inside of us. So yeah, we don't know everything about God. We can't know everything about God. And we're never going to know everything about God. And yes, I know that we prefer answers that are clean cut. I do too. But don't be tempted to discard it, or to write it off, or to not ask questions just because it's a mystery. Just because the Holy Spirit is a mystery doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not relevant. It is absolutely relevant. Mystery in the New Testament is defined ultimately this way. It's like something that's been hidden and impossible to discover by human means, meaning like the things of God we can never know on our own. No scientific method, no empirical wisdom, no studies, no academia, no master's degree, PhD, nothing. You can never know the things of God unless God reveals it to us. And there are things in Scripture that God has revealed to us sufficiently for us to have faith in. The gospel, Jesus is known as a stumbling block. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. God would come down, like take on flesh, live among us, really humble, without like showboating or letting people know that, and, and he's born of a virgin? Like, that's a mystery. How does that happen? Like, he's to be the savior of the world. He's the only way, even though there's multiple people, multiple ethnicities, multiple countries, and there's multiple gods. Isn't it arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way? How can you say that? Well, that's a mystery. How could God allow humanity's own creation to execute himself? Like, how has this happened? Like, God emptied himself to take on the form of a human for us. To die the death that we should have died. To live the life that we should have lived. To be buried and resurrected three days to show himself to a bunch of witnesses who then gave their lives up for the sake of following Jesus, who then ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to us. That's a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. The reason why I'm wanting to unpack it this way is because we're going to start to see how the Holy Spirit reveals himself through the Apostle Paul in scriptures. Okay, so let's start here. I, I want you to tr- uh, follow along with me because I'm going to build this case about the presence of God and understanding the holiness of God and how does that like, lead us to understanding one dynamic that we have yet to talk about regarding the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. To see Jesus is to see God. He's the exact representation of God. Firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. God was pleased to have all of his fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, other things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Once you were alienated, separated, unknown, and hostile. You were an enemy of God, expressing that through your evil actions and disobedience and idolatry. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. We just celebrated that and remembered that, that his body was broken His blood was shed. That's how he made a way for reconciliation to happen. Why? To present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. In other words, so that his righteousness is now yours. In other words, it's this great exchange. He takes all of your sin and he gives you all of his righteousness. Not a bad deal. This is why he did this. Verse 25. Watch this. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26. The mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles, I want to encourage you, underline, highlight this one, memorize this, the glorious wealth of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory the mystery that's been hidden He's talking about all of the Old Testament times and everything that was meant to be pointing to this coming kingdom, to Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, Israel. All of these things were signs. The temple, the interactions with the temple, and the Holy of Holies, all was meant to be pointing to this moment. They didn't understand how it would all unfold. They didn't understand how it all looked and how it all came to be. But now the mystery has been made known. That it's not just Israel. It's open up to all who believe. And he starts to talk about this glorious wealth. Human language falls so short of the blessings that we have in Christ. The glorious wealth which is Christ in you. That is the Holy Spirit. This is profound. Now, like I want us to land and connect this to how the early church would have fully understood this. Even though they had all of these things in the Old Testament, specifically the temple and the rituals and all the kind of stuff that was there, it was all meant to help us understand our situation in front of God. So you have like the courtyard, they would construct that, and then you had the the holy place, and then inside was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was like the seat of God's throne, where his presence would be. In that room, the high priest, once per year, would go into there after significant ritual purity. He would go in there, have a rope tied to his ankle that would have bells on it. So he would go into the Holy of Holies, and if he were to do anything profane or do anything just slightly off, he would probably die. So that rope would be there in case he died, and they didn't hear the bells anymore. They would drag the high priest out this person would come in to the holy place once a year for the atonement of sins for all of Israel the presence of god was so significant in the garden god walked in the cool of the evening interacting with adam and eve over and over you hear in the old testament what god is there like our god who speaks to us but also dwells or resides among us the presence of God was the thing that guided Israel as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. It was the thing that blocked Pharaoh from coming to get them. It was the tremendous storm and fire and earthquake at Mount Sinai. It was the fire that fell from heaven when they like, presented the sacrifices for the first time. The presence of God was substantially important. Exodus 33 after Israel worshipped a golden calf. And God's like, go on, I'm sending an angel, I'm not going with you. Moses says, time out. If your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us. For what else will make us distinct? The presence of God. And then the Old Testament had these prophecies and promises of one who would be the Messiah, whose name is Emmanuel. God with us. And then there was prophecies about the Holy Spirit would fall on all who would believe. That wasn't how it was in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came on a select few for a specific reason, for a specific time. So now Paul is connecting all of these dots and he's saying to the believers, to you and I, who who have faith in Jesus, saying the glorious wealth is that the very presence of God that resided in the Holy of Holies is in you. That should make you kind of shudder. He is the image of the invisible God. He spoke all things into being and in his presence is in you. The holiest being ever is able to dwell inside of us because of Jesus' righteousness. This is profound. This is the glorious wealth of the mystery. Christ in you. Why do I say all of this? Because when it comes to following God, when it comes to following Jesus and learning how to be filled with the Spirit and learning to be led by the Spirit, the one area where I say where the church today is weak is in one of the areas that we see as prominent in the New Testament, and it's in the area of prayer. Why don't we pray? I'm willing to bet We don't pray like we ought because it's a mystery. How many of you went, I don't don't know what to pray for. What's the point? He already knows. How does this work? And we get all wrapped up in in the crazy theology of it all, and it's so complex, we don't know, so we don't do it. Or not only that, maybe we just don't fully understand who we are and who Jesus is and what really is inside of us. And the profound blessings that are waiting to be untapped. We tend to treat prayer as perfunctory, as a form, as something that you do. But when you read the New Testament and you understand the Holy Spirit, prayer was seen as the sole life source. It was so essential, so profound. Let's look at this Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20. Pray at all times in the Spirit. All right, I want you to say that with me. Pray at all times in what? You should ask, what does that mean? Right? You should, you should really go... What is that? And I know, like, there's a little bit of a, uh, just the same thing that we always feel when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Oh, my goodness, is, does this mean speaking in tongues? Like, is this what he's talking about now? Like, he wants us to speak in tongues. Should have had a Honda. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad joke. But, like, is that what he's saying? Like, I'm just going to throw this out to you. Yes, but not just that. Now you're like, well, let's talk about it. I will in a podcast. Sorry. There's, there's more to it. Praying at all times in the spirit. Keep, if you keep reading this, it's like with every prayer and every request, staying alert or being aware with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. This is so beautiful. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Prayer is a mystery. Amen? Amen. It's a mystery. And that's why we tend to just kind of keep it as a form because it's like, it's hard. It's, it's weird. I don't fully get it. And, and maybe your prayer life has never really like got into the depth where you like had to experienced the richness of that conversation or communication with God. But we need to ask this question. What is prayer, praying in the spirit? What is it? Context is significant. Okay, so now Paul, at the beginning of this little section here, he's talking about the armor of God. He says to the church in Ephesus, be strong in the might of God. Be strong in the might of God. Well, well why? So the, here's how you're going to do it. You put on the full armor, not parts of the armor, but the full armor of God because the enemy is satan the devil and the demons and all of these other demonic beings well they're going to come against you they have schemes to go at you for our battle is not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities oh there's another mystery like saying like it's not against flesh and blood ultimately so because of that you need to stand firm Because when the evil day comes, when the attack comes, you're able to do everything that you can to stand firm. So put on the full armor of God, the belt of truth, the the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the the right footings for the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, right, and the sword of the Spirit. All of these types of things. We're like, yeah, let's do that. Let's go with it. And then this verse shows up. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Like that verse in Paul's teaching is the one that gets the least amount of attention, because we like the armor part. Like, we're like, Let's just, "Yeah, stand firm in the might of God, belt truth, the truth, breastplate of righteousness." Like we like that stuff. Give me the sword of the spirit. But but the way Paul writes this is saying essentially, here's how you actually put on the full armor. You got to pray in the Spirit. Like, this, this is how it, it, you put it on. And we miss that. And I think Paul gives us some, like, clues as to the significance of this. Because he goes, hey, pray always for the saints. With continued perseverance. Keep praying for them. Because now you see Paul saying, pray also for me. Every time I read this, two words come to my mind. Wait, what? Like, well, but Paul, why are you asking for prayer? Because... My mind has this thought, like, Paul didn't need it. Like, Paul was awesome. Everywhere he went, everything happened. Like, like, I just think like that. Like, Paul really is, in a lot of ways, like, the exemplar for us as to what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit and how to walk by the Spirit. Paul was an ambitious man. Wherever he went, he shared Jesus. He wrote the majority of our New Testament. He planted influential churches that rocked the Roman Empire, so on and so forth. And here, he's still asking for prayer. Specifically, he's asking for boldness. Now, I don't think Paul is just like, let me just throw out a little prayer request. Hey, please pray for boldness for me, even though I don't really need it. Like, I don't don't think that's it. I think this is an indication of Paul realizing where his weakness is. He said it in Corinthians, I came to you in fear and trembling. Like, I can't preach with boldness unless the Holy Spirit empowers me to do that and pray with me. Ask the Lord for this. Here's what hit me. Before Paul did anything else, before Paul evangelized, before Paul wrote the letters, before Paul went to different cities and planted churches, before Paul discipled others, before Paul ultimately gave his life for Jesus as a martyr, Paul was a man of prayer. Because there was something in it that he understood that we need to understand. Every letter, every letter that Paul writes, he talks about prayer not just as a practice that the church should engage in, but as something vital and needed for each believer. Like, how did Paul know what to pray for in the churches? Like, he, he didn't just, like, send a text message to Corinth. Hey, do, 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 got any prayer requests this week? Cool, got it. Like, he didn't do that. And he let people know in the letters, I'm praying for you daily, constantly, and here's what I'm praying for. Paul knew what to pray for, because he was praying in the spirit, underneath the spirit's, prompting and guiding in insight and discernment as to what to pray for. Prayer wasn't just a form, it wasn't just a religious practice. It was the sole key. Paul knew that in order to live in the love of Christ, to walk in freedom and to be filled by the spirit and to be led by the Spirit, prayer was vital. Paul would constantly, constantly intercede. And he was prompted, nudged, moved, pushed, compelled, whatever word you want to use, by the Spirit. And he would pray for that. How many of you have ever had that sort of experience where all of a sudden you're just like, I should pray for this? Right? You know, like, you like, ever start like praying for something and you just feel like you're being pushed more and more into it? Like, you almost wanna, like, okay, I'm gonna stop praying. You're also like, you feel like in your spirit, like, you can't stop praying for it or you shouldn't stop praying for it. Well, that's part of praying in the spirit. So I've been asking this question why is this so hard for us today? Like, well, why is this so hard? When you read Acts, over and over and over and over and over, what preceded any gospel power revival prayer was what preceded it. Not individual prayer, but you know they prayed individually, but they prayed as a body, which in itself is a mystery, that you and I are one in Jesus. Why don't we do this? Like, why is, I'm not scolding, I'm not any of that, don't hear that, I'm not condemning, I'm just asking the question, why are prayer meetings the hardest thing to get people to come to in the church? I, I, just, I just wonder, it's like we just fail to understand the glorious wealth of the mystery or maybe we just don't think it's vital or necessary or important or enjoyable. All these types of things. Like, like then we've got to start asking the question, like, well, how is my own personal prayer life? Like, these are important things for us to understand. Because Christ in you is this mystery. And let's not fail to remember the connection It's the presence of God that resided in the Holy of Holies is inside of you. This gospel, a holy God, died our death. We are justified by what he has done. Now we are made right because of Jesus. We are sanctified, adopted, presence of God, power of the Holy Spirit, new life, all living within. This is essential. When Jesus taught in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, remain in me, and I'll remain in you. Like we 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 know that passage, and even the fact that he goes in John 15, 5, like, apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, like by the flesh you can do nothing. It's all by the spirit. But as we continue to lean into this, we gotta start asking a question: what does it mean to abide or to remain in the vine? we tend to immediately think. We tend to immediately think right away. Scripture, Bible study, quiet time. And then a close second is go to church. Small group, close third. And then serving a distant fourth. Like we we tend to think that way. And prayer doesn't necessarily show up in in that sequence. Now, all of that is good because we're exhorted to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We're exhorted to do this together as believers. But when Jesus was teaching this passage, like, you got to understand, the disciples didn't have the New Testament. Look at John 14. John chapter 14. Jesus says this in verse 25 and 26. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. Okay? He's like... I've told you these things. They don't have the Bible as we have it. But the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. So there's this connection that of intimacy through prayer that they are going to be reminded of what Jesus taught them. So then he continues multiple times in John 15. If you remain in me, I'll remain in you. Then you can ask... Whatever it is according to the Father's will in my name, and he will do it. Multiple times he brings that up. Ask the Father. Ask the Father. And that's talking about praying. He says, here's why I'm telling you this. So that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. It's like as you abide, it's in this relationship. He wants us to ask. He wants us to connect. He wants us to be dependent. That's praying in the spirit. In fact, in John 16, 23-24, he tells them, like, up to this point, you have not asked anything of me in my name. He's like, you, you have not prayed that way. And he goes on, at the very end... Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Ask and you receive. Why? So that your joy will be complete. Friends, listen nothing reveals your beliefs like how you pray. Andrew Murray. Great man of prayer wrote many books and devotionals on prayer. I remember reading that line, and it just, poof. and I was like, at first I was like, that's not true. And then I started thinking about it. When you pray, who are you praying to? What are you asking for? Why are you praying to him, and why are you asking for what you're asking for? What are you expecting to happen from praying? How do you see yourself in prayer? Do you see yourself in need, hungry, desperate, thirsty, weak as a jar of clay or something special? Are you coming in prayer as an independent, strong, and self-reliant, self-confident person? Are you coming entitled or grateful? Do you come with a posture of, I deserve this, or undeserving? Do you see yourself as an orphan, hoping and begging and pleading for God to put favor on you and love you? Or do you see yourself as a child of God? Like so many things. Like how do you see your life? And what is the purpose of your life? And whose kingdom matters most? These things are reflected in your prayer life. How often do you pray? Well, that's a sign of your intimacy with God. It really is. The early church understood when they thought of prayer and when they thought of the presence of God inside of them, it was temple imagery that drove it. Remember, when Jesus died in the Holy of Holies, just before that, the veil was torn. The veil that separated everybody from the presence of God is now open. And so the early church, they thought of it this way, like in Hebrews 4. Talking about how Jesus is the high priest, and he understands all of our weaknesses, and he he engaged and endured without sin. But then it says, therefore boldly approach the throne of grace in your time of need. The throne of grace is speaking about the the mercy seat where the Ark of the Covenant was, the presence of God, where the high priest in the Old Testament would not boldly approach. He would come in in a lot of fear and trembling with a rope attached to him in hopes he doesn't die. But now because we are made right Through Jesus Christ, we can boldly access the presence of God. They understood this amazing blessing of praying. You ever think about why Jesus, when he went to Jerusalem, and he looked at the temple, and he saw how all the money changers and how they were oppressing people and distorting and creating all sorts of chaos in the temple that he went away that night and he, he plotted in his mind what he was going to do and made a whip. And then the next day he goes in there and takes people to town, like kicking them out and... That's, that's not your cuddly Jesus. Like, like chaos. And then he says, my house shall be called a house of... Study. Why prayer? Vital connection. Presence of God. Significant stuff. Where did Paul learn about this praying in the Spirit as the means to put on the armor of God? I'm willing to bet he thought about Jesus in the garden. Right before he was betrayed and arrested, tried unjustly, before he was nailed to a cross, he knew what was coming. He's fully God. And in the garden, he prayed. And he prayed in the spirit. That's where he put the armor on. He was wrestling with God and he was praying for God's will and he was yielding himself to the spirit. And when he was finished praying in his spirit, you can tell that as he got up to walk out, there was a sense of confidence and peace and rest in the midst of great evil. He was praying in the spirit. So friends, here's how I want to end. And I was thinking really hard about this. I was like, okay, because this, this stuff is, is a mystery What's the difference between praying in the flesh and praying in the spirit? So here's what I came up with as a steward of the mysteries of God. I'm trying my best, folks, okay? I wrote down just a bunch of bullet points that I believe to be true of either one. Here's what praying in the flesh would look like. When you're praying, you forget who you are praying to. Just think of the Lord's Prayer as a good template for this. You forget who you're praying to, Father in heaven. What is the relationship that you have? You forget who is inside of you. Sometimes that might even show up as a lack of reverence. You forgot the love of God that you're no longer under condemnation, but now you're trying to prove again. You're not living in the freedom. Praying in the flesh is you forgetting whose kingdom matters most. You're praying primarily about your kingdom and and your needs without much thought of the kingdom of God. Praying in the flesh is lack of humbling oneself before God so that he would exalt you. Because we really love to exalt ourselves. But humble yourself before God. Not expecting God to act or to do good. James 1, when you pray for wisdom, believe that God will give it to you. Sometimes we pray just as part of form and function without actually applying faith to it. Prayer is seen as a form force, self-reliance and self-confidence. Like you can pray like that. The Pharisees did. Lord, look at me. I am so glad I'm not like so and so. We can pray that way. You ever gossip in your prayer? Lord, we pray for Susie. She can't stop gossiping. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know Susie. Susie, I'm sorry. I don't know you. Lack of peace and perspective after you say amen. Prayer did nothing. You're not walking into peace that surpasses understanding. You're not finding the quietness and rest inside of you. There's no resolve of surrender when you pray. You really aren't really going, God, your will be done, not mine. You're more like, God, please do what I'm asking you to do. No listening. No listening. No listening or desire to really obey. And one other part, I know there's probably more, I would say praying in the flesh is there's a lack of confession and deep repentance. Praying in the spirit, here's some things that I was thinking. There's an awareness of the holiness of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hebrews chapter 12, 28 through 29 is a great verse. Talking about like... We do not come to this temple. Like, we're, we have a kingdom that will not be shaken. He's a holy God. When you pray in the Spirit, you approach prayer in faith. That's that Hebrews eleven six. Like, anybody who draws near to God has to have faith, believing that he hears and rewards those that come near. Praying in the Spirit is a posture of humility. One who listens and looks, waits and asks for help in prayer. Here's the only application I want to have you guys do this week. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. Paul, we talked about this before, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with words that we don't even know. But there's a line in there It says, he does this because we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So here's the application. When you pray, before you start talking and bringing... You're going to have to talk. Before you start bringing all of your requests, you start with this. Holy Spirit, what should I pray for? Listen. Take risks. Write down what comes to your mind and your soul. Maybe it's a verse. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a situation. But listen. Ask. Ask. That's humility. I don't know what to pray for. A lot of times we come to prayer thinking we know what to pray for. Right? Like let's just say a friend of mine gives me a prayer request. Maybe that's not the real issue. Holy Spirit, what's the real issue? Ask. That's humility. That's praying in the spirit. It's rooted in relationship. Father in heaven. You're a good father. We boldly approach. We're not wondering. We're not, are you going to love me? Are you not going to love me? Is there grace? Is there no grace? Praying in the spirit is a pouring out of the heart. Psalm 62, 8, pour out your heart to him. Praying in the spirit is willing to come to God and say, search me, O Lord. Show me if there's anything inside of me. Forgive me of my sins so I, as I forgive those who sin against me. There's an interceding and a kingdom-mindedness. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Willingness to yield, praying, faith, hope, and love, aware of the fruit of the Spirit, moving when you're done praying in a posture of rest, peace, and joy, and courage because we placed faith in a God who hears and in a God who acts. It's praying in the Spirit. Jude 20, verse 21. Jude speaking to a church, and he says, Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. All of that is done by praying in the Spirit. And it's not just something that we do individually, it's something that we do together. Friends, I've had, like, I've had prayer moments where I've fallen asleep. Just being honest. I remember in a prayer meeting in Romania, the students that were leading said, I was snoring. I said, You lie. I've had prayer times where it just felt like I was just grinding. And then there was times where I just felt like the wind was blowing and I was just caught up in the ride. There's been times in prayer where I'll be praying for someone and and asking the Lord what does he want to say or what's the real issue. And all of a sudden felt like I got an impression or some kind of discernment in a situation. And either I would pray for it or I would say it to the person and pray for it and find that, man, the Lord was reading someone's mail. I've had people come to me and say, I felt like the Lord was doing this while I was praying for you, you know? And I was like, okay, cool. And then finding it like, actually having prevalence and relevance. We see God sending people out from prayer and worship meetings all throughout Acts. Look at Acts 13, powerful stuff. So all I want you to do as you walk out of here is not get overwhelmed with the mystery but start, simply ask the Holy Spirit what to pray for and just start writing. Just start writing, keep a prayer journal. Watch, it's not perfunctory. Even if it's a grind, even if it's a battle, you keep going, you keep going. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that the mystery Is full of glorious wealth, Lord, and I thank you that we have the presence, your presence inside of us fully, and 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 I first to confess, I don't fully understand that, I don't fully get that, but I know it's true because of your righteousness. I've been justified, and so when you see me, you see holiness, you see Jesus and and that's why you can live and reside inside of us. And that have created access for us to come to you where there's multiple promises that like if we turn our hearts towards you and we cry out to you, you will hear from heaven. But now it's like you will hear from within us. Lord, I pray that you through the power of your Holy Spirit would do something in our hearts as a church, that we would be known as a church that takes prayer serious. So, Lord, I just pray that you would begin to pour out your blessings on my brothers and sisters in this room as they move towards you in prayer. For those whose seasons of prayer is grinding and confusing and just like feels like I'm chewing dirt or sand, Lord, I pray that it be full of life and fruitfulness. Lord, I pray for an overflow of joy and blessing and peace. Lord, I pray for rest in those who are dealing with anxiousness in their heart that when they come to you, they can go cast all your anxieties on you because you care and they can leave it there and receive the peace of Christ. Lord, I pray that power comes. I pray that Acts 4 situations would happen when we pray and we ask for boldness and we move out in boldness that your spirit would fill us and shake the room as it were. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. We're eager. We're hungry. In Christ's name.